Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook. If you would like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Um, have a good time tonight, guys. I just want to make one reminder to you. Um, we're an independent bookstore. And we like being here, and we like serving the community, and we've loved having you guys here all these years. But one of the main things we like to do is sell books. So if you could support us and buy some books tonight, or buy a postcard, anything, it would be greatly appreciated so that we can keep having these events for you. Thank you very much. And I will uh, introduce Double Master Tom Rostrelli to the floor. That's because he's, he's very brilliant. <laughs> All right, thanks, Darren. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the USC MPW Student Faculty Reading Series. Um, tonight, our theme is Holiday, Heaven, or Hell. Um, so we will leave that up to the, the readers to decide for us tonight. Um, just a few quick things. Um, first of all, thank you to Darren and everyone here at Skylight for hosting our event tonight. Our faculty reader tonight will be Gina Binahai, and we have we have some of her they have some of her books on hand, Caspian Rain. So if you would like to purchase Caspian Rain, Gina would be happy to sign that for you afterwards. So our first reader tonight is Haley Huntley, and Haley is a first-year nonfiction concentration. Her favorite holiday is Thanksgiving because it's about family and food and you don't have to spend the weeks before far away from the ones you love shopping for their gifts. Her craziest best or worst holiday memory, which one was it? Craziest but best, worst? Okay, I think it's probably her craziest holiday memory is that one Christmas Eve, the power went out, meaning the heat went out, so her family stayed all night at a casino. It was the best hotel option in Reno, Nevada. And they drove home early on Christmas morning to find the lights on, and Haley thought Santa had done it. Aww. And something you may not know about Haley is that she believed in Santa until she was 13. So Haley Huntley. <laughs> called um, Diary of a Ballerina Dropout. During my amateur ballerina career in fabulous Reno, Nevada, I performed in somewhere between six and eight nutcrackers. They blend together now like all the birthdays I thought I'd never forget. Most nutcrackers were the same, just ask my mom who came to every one, or my dad who stopped coming at all, saying inarguably, I saw that last year. <laughs> he used to say how ridiculous the nutcracker was, and I couldn't always defend the other side. It's a story of Clara, who receives a magical nutcracker on Christmas Eve, who, with the help of her mysterious uncle, grows into a life-size nutcracker prince. He takes Clara through a winter wonderland to sit on a throne and watches coffee, cookies, candies, and other treats come to life to dance for her. I'm sure these were not the plot points that made my dad take issue, though, because that summary leaves out the battle scene where life-size mice try to kill Clara, and where the prince slays the rat king. 
and it's not clear why the flowers, where the flowers come from in the waltz of the flowers, or why several little children are trapped under Mother Ginger's skirt. My dad isn't the only one with questions, but when I was in the Nutcracker, it was unquestionably sacred. All of the roles in the Nutcracker fit into a rigid and rather universal hierarchy, so a big part of why I stayed in dance so long was the promise of promotion year after year, a promise that was not always fulfilled. First, I was a mouse, but not just any mouse, the only one that gets shot in the battle. I remember trying new methods of falling and dying, seeing if I could get the audience to laugh, even in the middle of the ballet. I was later cast as the soldier who shoots the mouse, but I almost always missed the sound of the gunshot in the music by the slightest beat. Luckily, soldiers weren't allowed to smile on stage because my nerves wouldn't have allowed me to anyway. My favorite role when I was younger was Party Girl, a role that does not play around with mice and soldiers. I had a special bit part where Claire's uncle led me around the stage on my tippy toes with my nose in the air. In the program, I was billed as The Brat, a role created just for me. I wore a velvet dress and pantaloons my mom had sewn. On performance days, my mom and I woke up when it was still dark and made our way to the kitchen with robes and socks guarding us from the morning cold. I would sit at our kitchen counter and pick at the cinnamon sugar toast she'd made me while she curled my hair. The, girl, the curls had to sustain the bouncing and dancing, so she'd take one-inch sections, spray them with special hairspray we bought just for the occasion, wrap the hair around the curling iron, and hold it there while the spray sizzled and steamed. When she released the curl, it would stay exactly as it had looked around the iron, and after an hour, my head was full of stiff crunch cylinders that swung and bounced like the dreadlocks on a raggedy end doll. It was in that way that my mother, even though she knew very little about the arts of hair and makeup, had a role in the Nutcracker too. Stylist. Uncredited. <laughs> of course, when I grew up and started to do more grown-up Nutcrackers, I was required to buy fake hair pieces that clicked onto my bun, a chunk of someone else's curls. I always preferred the old way. But those early years are not what I think of when I remember the Nutcracker, because then I was young enough to consider ballet just my after-school activity. Everything changed when I was old enough to go on point. That is, old enough to wear the hard toe shoes with ribbons that wrap around the ankle, and old enough to have a whole new set of Nutcracker rolls open up to me. I moved to the Reno Dance Company in middle school with a new teacher named Lisa, and went from being one of the best to the absolute worst dancer in my age group, amidst a group of girls whose muscles were so much stronger than mine, who could do ballet steps I'd never even heard the names of, who would have been my friend faster if I'd been better. At the Reno Dance Company, which was a relatively young studio in Reno, I learned that dancing for fun was not enough. It was in my first or second year with Lisa that the Reno Dance Company decided they should produce their own Nutcracker. At least three local companies and one traveling company already produced the Nutcracker every year. So because the Reno Dance Company was new, Lisa required us to dance in it. And in that way, dancing in our Nutcracker became a sort of conscription into the army that each winter would defend the honor of our little company. Lisa was the youngest, fittest, and edgiest of the credible dance teachers in Reno. She had glossy black hair, white veneers over her teeth, fake breasts, and the highest cheekbones I've ever seen. Lisa wasn't bred from the bun-haired, ruler-whacking ballet mistresses. She was a different kind of queen. She had run away from home at 16 to dance at Disney World, which I always thought accounted for her wrath when one of us skipped class to study. She encouraged us to try out for obscure cruise lines and took no interest in those of us applying to college. Unlike other teachers who would tell dancers what to do from a chair in the corner of the room, Lisa did all the choreography with us and better than us. That was her most redeeming quality, that even with her foul mouth, favoritism, and wretched bad moods, she was exquisite when she danced. Once her ex-husband and former dance partner came backstage before one of our shows, and the two reenacted their famous tricks from when they danced the Arabian number in the Las Vegas Nutcracker, he picked Lisa up from a supine position on the floor all the way into an upside-down split above his head where he held her with one arm. I was humbled for weeks. 
Lisa would fight and flirt, she told us, for the Reno Dance Company to get the contract to perform at the Hilton Casino. Its stage is documented as the biggest stage in the world, so deep that a 747 jet hides behind the upstage curtain, retired from its days in casino show business, and from its days in commercial flight too, of course. For our summer recitals, we made use of the special features left over at the theater from the showgirl days, rotating side stages, elevating platforms that dropped two stories below the stage, and a water tank above the ceiling that showed up in our recreations of both singing in the rain and, though we were probably too young for it, flash dance. For the Nutcracker, we used the special talents of the Hilton Theater to produce snow at the end of Act One during the waltz of the snowflakes. Just before intermission curtains closed, the music would soften and the snow would fall, inviting even the sleepiest audience member to widen her eyes and sit forward a little. Pieces of white fluff would drift from the rafters and alight on the false eyelashes of the dancers, who bounced in twirls in white tutus. This scene looked the way one might imagine ballet is supposed to. And so when I was cast as a snowflake, I practically fell to my knees. My years as a mouse, a soldier, a party girl, an angel, a soldier and a party girl again, they'd all been a warm up for my real career as a ballerina. Snowflake was the highest rank I ever rose to. Eventually my classmates graduated to flower, Arabian, Spanish, usually being cast as more than one. These were the girls to whom dance was everything. And it was true that being required to do eight hours of class a week, followed by Saturdays and Sundays full of rehearsals, dance almost had to be everything. But my dad grew disappointed when he saw that ballet and I didn't have time for basketball or tennis or any of the other things I once did. Nutcracker season conflicted with ski season, so I never became an expert at that, his favorite sport either. He started complaining that my mom and I spent more time together than with him, but we always protested that it was because she drove me to dance. And then I got my driver's license, which meant I wasn't even spending time with one parent, let alone both. I started to dread dance, and when I was there, I wouldn't try very hard. I'd watch the clock instead. When I'd sit on the side of the stage during a rehearsal, rubbing my swollen feet and praying we'd take a break, I would obsess over everything else my family and friends were doing, where they were, what I was missing out on. <clears throat> my friends got accustomed to prefacing invitations with, I know you have Nutcracker, but... I called the girls at the dance company my friends too back then, but that's not what they were. There were only 35 of us, and during Nutcracker season, I'd sometimes spend 30 hours a week with them, but competition always poisoned friendship. If I missed a class, they were trained to take note, and more than one would ask the next day, where were you last night? As though they were at once disappointed in and jealous of me. The only time we were all truly united was when Lisa was angry with all of us. Which happened quite often during Nutcracker season. <laughs> she would become stressed and particularly attentive to our eating habits and any slight changes in our bodies. If she saw us eating something sweet before class, she'd make a joke, point us out and say, just wait till you have to put on a tutu, that's all I'm going to say. More than once, she gathered us on the floor of the dance room to talk about our health, making a few girls in the audience squirm, since she most certainly was not speaking to everyone. She'd say, if you can't fit in the costume, you can't be in the dance. We'd get ravenous from eight-hour rehearsals, but only certain foods were acceptable to calm the hunger. Small cups of yogurt and energy bars were trendy, until one girl trumped everyone by bringing only gallon-sized bags of carrots and celery. After the first half of one particularly brutal rehearsal, I was so starving that my friend and I ran to the alley behind the theater and whispered during a covert phone call to her mother, go to Jack in the Box, bring us one of everything. We sat outside, 20 feet away from the stage door behind a low wall, eating from three grease-stained bags of fast food ambrosia. With a mouthful of curly fries, I asked her ironically, want to split a power line? <laughs> Even being a snowflake, though, lost its magic. The first year was an honor, but it was an embarrassment the second. I had to tell my friends and family, you don't have to come watch this year if you don't want to, I'll just be in the same number you saw last time. When the third year rolled around, 
with my third tour as a snowflake, I began to sneak in acts of resistance to combat the monotony. One dress rehearsal, we were slumped in our dressing room chairs with our tutus fluffed up around us, dreading the musical cue for us to scamper backstage. Most girls stared in the mirrors, lined with bare light bulbs, adjusting their lipstick for the fifth time or batting their false eyelashes. I grabbed my eyeliner, leaned into the mirror, and with my finger wiped the saliva from my left front tooth. Keeping my top lip curled up and away from my teeth, I smeared the black eyeliner pencils, waxy pigment all across the enamel so that when I smiled, it looked as though I was missing a very important tooth. To my surprise, everyone copied me. They all picked different blackout combinations so that one girl looked like a kindergartner with a missing front teeth, and one looked like a pirate who had fewer white teeth than black ones. <laughs> what if we went on stage like this? I asked. Instead of dragging ourselves to the backstage wings, we hurried behind the curtains, hushing giggles and trying not to accidentally lick off the eyeliner. On stage, we must have looked like we were drunk, as our laughter numbed our feet and threw us off balance. It was the only time Lisa didn't have to shout at us to smile more. If perform was all I ever did, perhaps the rush of being on stage or the feeling of pausing in the middle of the dance to imagine myself as graceful and delicate in the most classically beautiful art form I could imagine, perhaps that would have kept me in ballet for much longer. But performances, the makeup, and the tutu and the music, performances were the reward, and eventually they weren't enough. That last year, I remember coming home after a Saturday morning rehearsal, having already pulled my hair from its tight knot at the back of my head. I peeled my ballet shoes off my red feet, covered in blisters and freezing from the sweat meeting the cold air. I'd walked in our back door when my dog was sleeping. The smell of bacon lingered in our kitchen, having already been eaten up by my dad, who sat in the sunlit den watching football. I walked toward him and fell down on the couch, letting myself be lullabied by the sounds of the game. The announcer's voice is all blending into one, the whistles keeping an arrhythmic beat, and commercials marking the end of phrases. My parents were so restful, so comfortable, and drinking in the change of the seasons from inside our warm house. I remember having the distinct feeling, then, that dance was robbing me of slow mornings, of carefree weekends, of entire autumns and winters. Having done one thing from age three to 18, I never imagined quitting would be as easy as sending an email after closing night of my final nutcracker. Thank you, Haley. Allison Gibson is a first-year fiction concentration. Her favorite holiday is Festivus. For those of you non-Seinfeld fans, it means Christmas, of course. And her best holiday memory is of Christmas in Barcelona a few years ago, when she and her husband seemed to be the only people in the deserted city. And you may not know that as a child, Allison was an all-star hockey goalie. Allison Gibson. This, good? this is um, an untitled short story that I workshopped in Gina and the highest fiction class. I cut my finger dicing tomatoes for a salad. Harley didn't like to keep band-aids in the cabin, so I let the thin gash bleed a little as I walked out onto the porch to find him. He was in the garden planting, and I walked toward him through the lush vegetation as early evening sunlight fell in lavender ribbons across my path. The slit in my finger stung, and I was irritated by how easy it would have been to stick a bandage over the wound and move on with dinner. The cabin sat at the top of the hill in northwest Washington on 24 acres of organic garden that Harley had spent 10 years planting and maintaining. 
To the untrained eye, it would look like acres of wild, untamed foliage, but Harley had planned every tree and plant on the property. He was compulsive about plants and flowers and knew more about them than I imagined any person could before I met him. I was 25, Harley was 10 years older, and he was the sexiest man I'd ever known. He had lived alone in the cabin for several years before I moved in. No dog, no television, no band-aids. Once he mentioned a woman who used to live there with him. He only said that in the end, she wanted a simpler life. When he told me this about the unnamed woman, Harley asked me if it was possible to live more simply than he did. I put pressure on my bleeding finger and stood above Harley, who was kneeling in the dirt, his thick dreadlocks pulled back from his face with a worn red bandana. An open mason jar of dark beer rested on the ground at his side, the glass smudged with dirty fingerprints. I showed him the cut and he pulled me close to him and began licking the wound. Saliva has certain antibacterial agents, he said, and then he pulled the bandana from his head and wrapped it tightly around my finger. Now, let's find some calendula. He jumped to his feet like a child and rushed through the knee-high maze of greenery, pulling me along by my good hand. When we stood beside the pot marigold, after he had collected a handful of its leaves to make a wash for my wound, I told him I might need a band-aid as well. He pulled me to him and kissed me hard and then said, Baby, I love you too much to see you infected by the toxins of that world. <laughs> when I was young, my family lived at the top of Queen Anne Hill in Seattle, wedged between faux colonial houses, an urban family. My father had a white Chevy pickup truck, and once I watched him rotate the tires. After that, I became convinced that he had built the entire truck himself, and the idea followed me through the years long after I was old enough to know better. Though we lived in the city, my father insisted on doing this sort of handiwork himself in the small, detached garage off the back alley. From up there, I would look out at the city lights below, the jagged outlines of skyscrapers with the neon curve of the space needle protruding just above the rest, and I would pretend that what lay below was instead a river winding through a vast green forest. One evening when I was eight, my father drove me to a dance rehearsal in that truck of his. My mother was working late, and so it was left to him to braid my hair and get me to the studio on time. My brother came along for the drive, and since it wasn't raining, we were allowed to ride in the bed of the truck. It was a time when people were still lax about those kinds of dangers. People like my father, who grew up on a farm in Kitsap County and knew what was right for his own children. We were only going a few miles. Though it wasn't raining, the air was moist, and it made my pink spandex leotard slip to the touch. My brother Michael, who was 10 at the time, was pretending to be a dog and crawled on all fours around the bed of the truck, his jeans soaking at the knee from the damp metal surface. We made it downtown in less than 10 minutes, and when we passed Stewart Street, Michael started chasing his tail. I tried to look through the window of the truck to see if my father was watching us in the rearview mirror, but the glare from the streetlights obstructed my view, so I stood to look from a better angle. At Pine Street, a car sped across the road in front of us, and my father slammed on the brakes to miss it. Michael slid across the wet metal bed lining and smashed into the back of the truck's cab. Because I had been standing, I was thrown from the truck and landed on my side in front of a pet shop on First Avenue. I had first met Harley at a Halloween party in Bellingham, a short, a short time after I moved up there from Seattle. 
Bellingham is a small college town near the Canadian border, but Harley still calls it the city. After finishing college at Washington University and working for two more years at the same bookstore in Pioneer Square that I'd been at since high school, I'd finally decided to get away from Seattle. I wanted to get a little closer to that green forest landscape that I'd imagined as a child. A new acquaintance invited me to go along with her to a costume party, and in a last-minute effort, I dressed as a beatnik. I was self-conscious about the faded black jeans and slightly less faded black shirt I wore, and the beret I'd found at a thrift store that morning smelled of slot machine coins. When I saw Harley sitting cross-legged on the floor, surrounded by a group of people, his dreadlocks hanging limply over one shoulder, I assumed he was dressed in as failed a hippie costume as my beat get-up. After ten minutes of talking with him, I knew he hadn't worn a costume at all. I realized that I was in love with Harley a month later, when he took me camping by the Snoqualmie River. It was pouring rain, and he laid his head on my chest in the tent and told me about the Japanese-style pagoda he was building on his property. This way, when his friends came to play music at his place, they had a little stage. He knew more about the wood and what goes into hand building a pagoda than I knew about any subject I'd ever been interested in. And when I went to Harley's cabin for the first time, he took me on a tour around the entire property, stopping to rub eucalyptus leaves between his fingers or feed me a blackberry from the vine. His enthusiasm for his land was infectious, and the place had a magical feel to it, as if it were nowhere and everywhere all at once. I felt that this was the place I'd been looking for all my life and it wasn't long before I moved in. After dinner on the night I cut my finger, Harley read aloud to me from Anna Karenina, and then we made love on a patchwork quilt surrounded by the tall grass of the garden. When Harley fell asleep, I pulled my dress back on and walked to the edge of the property, which overlooked an endless forest of western hemlocks. I could see a faint outline of Mount Baker in the distance. It had shocked me how bright the night sky could be when I'd moved in with Harley back in the winter. On this night, stars spotted the dark like the freckles on my skin, and the whole forest below glowed in their reflection. I thought of how dim the sky is on a late summer night in Seattle. I imagined my father working in his garage, the door propped open to let the city air flow in, the sounds of screeching cars and sirens in the distance. It had been 17 years since the accident in my father's truck. Both Michael and I had suffered major bruising that night, and I had two cracked ribs and a broken arm. But in the end, it wasn't as bad as it could have been. Though I was a dancer at that age, I was also on the threshold of entering the tomboy phase, and the black and purple pattern of bruises that covered my right side like chainmail armor provided me a new toughness on the playground. The worst thing to come from the accident was that my father had had to bear the shame of being charged and fined for child endangerment. And there was the guilt. I imagined he carried it around in the back of that truck for years, letting it slide across the wet metal bed lining like a child on all fours. My father had made city life work for him as best he could. He had fallen in love with my mother and followed her there. And all these years, he never complained or tried to talk her into moving back to Kitsap. I wondered now if when he looked out from Queen Anne Hill, he saw his old farm instead of the Seattle skyline, the way I used to see a forest. The view from up here at Harley's cabin was about as close as could be to my childhood vision. And yet thinking about my father now, I pretended for a moment that what I saw below was Seattle. Harley 
he came up behind me and delicately placed his palm flat on my back, just between the shoulder blades. It was the kind of move that had seemed strange to me when we first started dating, until I found it caused a rush of passion to wash over me each time he did it. It began to rain lightly, and Harley held a little tent above our heads with a quilt he carried over. He told me about a rainy summer night several years before in Canada, when he'd driven his Volkswagen van up to Juneau and back with a friend. On that night, he lodged the van in some mud and decided to wait until morning to dig it out. The problem was his friend needed to be in Vancouver that night to play a show with his band, but Harley insisted he sleep on it. It would be simpler that way. It was a two-man job to pull the van out, and so his friend had no choice but to go along with Harley's plan. After I dropped the guy off at his gig the next day, Harley said, I never saw him again. In the moonlight, I saw him making a smug face. Maybe it was the subject we were on, vehicles and memories from long ago, but I began to tell Harley the story of the accident in Seattle. He watched me with sympathetic eyes as I spoke, and the rain soaked the quilt above us and made it heavy on the tops of our heads. That's why I'd never raise kids in the city, Harley said when I finished. He let the soggy quilt fall to the ground and held me gently, like I was a wildflower he plucked from the garden. Harley, it has nothing to do with living in the city, I said, and backed away from him. It was just one man's poor decision coinciding with another man's poor decision. It could have happened anywhere. I felt the need to defend my father somehow. I almost told Harley that my father built that truck from scratch himself, but then it occurred to me that this wasn't really true. I suppose I'd known all along that my father hadn't actually made the truck, but standing there, looking at Harley in the piercing moonlight with his smug, pitying face, I felt that I'd finally accepted a profound truth. Harley pulled me to him again, and with my head leaned against his chest and rain falling onto my face, I took in the jungle of gardens surrounding us. Again, it felt to me like nowhere and everywhere at once, but now the idea was more sad than peaceful. I wonder why people feel the need to complicate everything, Harley said. If only they knew how simple life can be. I felt a beating pulse in the tip of my finger where it had been cut. The wound was still open because Harley said it should breathe, and it felt sore as the rain pounded onto my skin. I wanted to ask Harley if he was curious whether or not I was in pain. I wanted to tell him about the sacrifice my father had made by staying in Seattle for his family, which seemed to me to be the exact opposite of leaving a van lodged in mud when a friend has some place to be. Instead, I kept quiet, because I knew that in the end I'd be just like that last woman who lived here. I would return to the city one day because it would be so much simpler than living in a massive garden with a view of endless trees. So much less complicated than living with his kind of simplicity. Thank you, Allison. Thank you. C.J. Francis is a second year screenwriting concentration. C.J.'s not really a holiday person, but she's learned to autopilot her way from November to January. <laughs> However, she's partial to candy canes and her grandmother's North Carolina-style fruitcake. You may not know that C.J. is a jazz vocalist and a graduate of the USC's Thornton Jazz Studies program. She's performed under the name Claudia Alexander, 
However, she's recently come to the decision to leave performing behind, and this will be addressed in one of the poems she's about to read for you. C.J. Francis. Good evening. Um, I'm going to read a few poems for you um, that I hope to compile into a chapbook. Um, that's the close of the spring semester. First one's called After Dream. And there we were, gently carousing in the early hours of the morning, in a womb of comfort and peace, our arms and legs a perfect fit. I remember looking at your lips, half conscious, and wondering how I should kiss you when I heard you whispering for me to kiss you as if we were in love. And that's when I pressed and plucked you, underlining your lips with my own. And then my mind drew a blank to the black of your skin. The thought of undressing you excited me because I knew what was next, and yet I hesitated. Before I could decide, you were urging me on further. And there we were when I heard her coming down the hall. I jumped up and out of bed to lock the door just in time, but as I turned to continue, there she was standing there, and we were discovered before I could have you the way I'd always wanted. I was so afraid. It wasn't the way that I wanted to be seen. And then she screamed, and it was over. And there I was, alone, wake, awake after dream. Second. Crush. Maybe if I write it down, it'll all go away. That's how I've spent the better part of this year, from the moment you collapsed into the seat next to me this spring empty-handed and brimming over with confidence. And I've been working you out on paper ever since, through nights of lonely here in LA. The words finally came in July at the start of an afternoon rain, and they couldn't come down fast enough. The sweet smell against the bright blue heat found me browsing my way down the line of your back with my lips and ended with a pair of us trying each other on in a mix of honey black beige and red as the sun softly lowered into the west and the silence of the horizon tickled in my ears. And now that you've been finalized in ink, I have you carefully filed in my mental under D for the discipline it's going to take to avoid the mention of the words from this page until I've been convinced that they won't run you away. My next piece is called, I borrowed a title Unfortunately, I did not write down the author's name. Um, but there's a new release coming out called Blue Light Jazz, and it kind of struck me that it, it matched with this piece. Um, as Tom mentioned, <laughs> I'm just kind of going through changes um, with jazz. And as they say sometimes in the jazz world, like jazz chooses you, you don't choose jazz. And I feel like it's a marriage that I want a divorce from. <laughs> um, I don't know. I've just been going through a lot of changes, so I've been journaling and writing about it. So this is the sum of it. It all happened so fast. I went from knowing exactly where I stood to having no place in the world, just like that. I mean, it's not like I feel bad about it anymore, with you constantly upstaging me over the years. I guess it was only a matter of time. I remember back when we first hooked up, my mom used to cry and yell about how you were leading me on. But of course, I didn't listen. 
Instead, I let hope float and I rode the current as I watched my friends stay warm and dry on corporate shores. All the same, I guess I was lucky to get out in time before reaching the edge. People keep asking me about you. Half the time, I just don't have it in me to tell them that it's over and I haven't seen you in months. Sometimes I walk by and I hear you underneath someone else and you sound so good. And I remember what it felt like when you confided in me, when you ran my sensibilities and supported me. It felt like you actually wanted me. But now it's just I, myself, and me working through another case of writer's block with my something new. Sometimes it feels like we never happened, like it was all a case of imaginary friend. I spend my nights without you nodding off to another episode of Laugh Tracks and waking up frozen blank and uncertain. Maybe now that I have the time, I can finally find someone to help me forget the measures and measures of rest notes lying ahead. But it seems like now that it's gotten around that you're gone, I can't get anyone to return my calls. So for the moment, I guess I'll have to be alone until the words begin to show. And my last piece is called The Moment Before. Exhausted and filled to capacity, I'm finally able to slow you down and still a few moments of peace before that one untimely move from you that sends me to a place that I'm never prepared to go. A place where my ambition gives way to the rush of your blood traveling up and throughout my limbs, sweetening my skin while th thickening at the root, always teaching me to be still and enjoy the moment, constantly reminding me of the changes I need to make in my life to accommodate the joy that God intended for me to have and to hold. My illumination ends with the dawning of another day in which I eagerly look forward to you finding your way back beneath me, teaching me and reminding me of where I belong. Thank you. Thank you, CJ. Alexandra D'Italia is a second year of fiction concentration. Her favorite holiday is Thanksgiving. Why? Two words, and they're not football. She knows how to spell. The two words are turkey, skin. <laughs> her favorite holiday memory is sitting at the kitty table with her cousins after eating the turkey, stuffing, and sweet potatoes while avoiding all the vegetables. They would take all the vegetables and put them on a plate, mash them up, and dare someone to eat it. The grosser, the better, and the smaller siblings always took the bait. Alexandra D'Italia. Five acres. Can you hear me? Good. Vera stood outside her cabin, a cabin on five acres of land, just three hours outside New York. All the rural grandeur she could afford, not one minute closer to the city. It was a log cabin, much like the ones her daughters, as children, had built with their Lincoln logs. In front of the cabin, there was a small porch with an overhang. Weather-beaten birdhouses and wind chimes had been left behind by a previous owner. They gave her cabin an artistic look, as if someone who threw pots and painted watercolors lived there. She envisioned summer mornings reading on that porch. She'd buy a rocking chair and get a table for coffee. 
She'd buy new mugs, something rustic and handmade. Her two adult daughters would bring their families and spend summers with her, at least a week. She planned to get a sheepdog and name him Ernest. Now her daughter Louie was coming for the weekend, a visit Vera had been hoping for since she moved six months ago. There was no need to remain in that four-bedroom house in Summit. New Jersey's rolling lawns and oversized colonials had been her ex-husband's dream, so he kept the house. But every time her daughters visited him, with every tread along the family home floorboards, Louie and her sister chose their father, and she wanted her daughters to choose her. She wanted to host Louie and wear her cabin and its five acres the way she used to wear her mink, yet she hadn't walked the full five acres. Of course she had walked around, but without a trail or a destination, she felt foolish. So each day she walked the same familiar loop, walking just outside of the cabin and back, Today was no different. She walked. Spring frost was in the air. One could smell the dirt, the trees unfreezing. Even in April, it smelled like Christmas. Dead leaves crunched beneath her. She stooped to grab a twig. She peeled back the bark and dropped the curly cues of wood. She remembered a song from her children's childhood. This land is your land. This land is my land. She could have sung at the top of her lungs. She would have interrupted no one, not the nosy O'Reilly's not the nosy Brex. She had left them behind. She sang the first line out loud. This land is your land. But it came out off key and she stopped. She knew she had been impulsive to buy real estate this way. The young man who helped the previous owner with the cabin's upkeep had assured her that every inch of her property was beautiful. Woods rolling along unfenced into the parklands. She chose to believe him. His name was Henry and she liked the look of him his earnest brown eyes, his aquiline nose. He and his wife had been her first and only guests. She had made a cheese fondue. <laughs> Through the bare trees to her right, she saw a house further up the hill, her nearest neighbor. A green expanse of lawn spread before the house like a rug. They built a statue out front, statue out front, Michelangelo's David. It loomed large, a clumsy facsimile. Even from here, she could make out his penis. So tacky, she thought. They must be from Staten Island. <laughs> she wondered if it were a couple who strove for opulence they couldn't afford elsewhere. Or perhaps it was a woman building a statue of the man she longed to date, a beacon. Vera felt herself flush. She walked back to the cabin. She heard the telltale crunch of gravel first. She waved to the white rental car. Louie had arrived. Her daughter unfolded herself from the seat, leaning back into the car before pulling herself a tote, a cell phone, and a large soda from the car. You've sequestered yourself in the country, Mom, Louie said. She opened her arms and Vera hugged her. Louie looked good, no different than when Vera had visited her daughter at Christmas. She was tall and airy and looking like her father. Her sharp features, unlike her own blunt ones, made Louie look serious. Even with two kids, she remained thin. Both she and Louie liked that emaciated look of understated elegance. Even so, for a doctor, Louie always looked harried, her shirt worn untucked and gapping at the waist, her hair tied up in a sloppy mess. She wondered if patients adored her for this show of humanity or frightened by the lack of precision with her appearance. She stifled an urge to lean forward and tuck the stray hairs behind Louie's ears. They didn't touch that way anymore. Instead, Vera patted her own hair. It's only three hours from New York. It's the next vacation hotspot. Vera knew she sounded like a realtor, yet it was true, and she wanted Louie to know it. That's great for all the New Yorkers, but it took me four hours from the airport. What are you going to do up here? 
teach like I did in New Jersey, and I'm going to get a sheepdog. You don't need to move to a cabin in the country to get a dog. You always said dogs needed land to run. I said that when I was in high school and didn't want to get stuck walking the dog as a chore. Vera took Louis' overnight back from the back seat and lugged it over the gravel. Her daughter had, like usual, been piercing and exact. I didn't mean it as some sort of slur. You should get a dog. Louis pulled the bag from her and grinned. Vera felt a pang of disapproval that she had gotten it wrong when she bought the cabin. Inside, Louis oohed and odd in all the right places. She loved the unfinished walls, although Vera bristled at the term unfinished, which implied something needed to be done. They were logs. Unfinished was finished. She loved the hardwood floors, the stone fireplace. She touched the stained glass window in the bedroom. This was no ordinary cabin. She marveled how well the modern furniture her mother had gotten in the divorce worked in a more rustic environment. She loved the main room best, a kitchen, a living room, and a dining room all in one. The roof, logs, and cross beams evident above them. It looks like a cathedral. Vera felt pleased. She made them tea and set out the Scotty, one she had bought the last time she was in New York. She had gotten chocolate chip, Louis' favorite. Vera squeezed lemon into her tea and stirred. I thought I would name it La Petite Maison sur le Mont. You're naming your property? <laughs> Louis said this is a statement of disbelief rather than a question. I'm going to buy a sign and post it by the mailbox. So I'm going to say I'm visiting La Petite Maison sur le Mont this weekend? Who are we, the Rockefellers? I thought you and the kids could come up for a few weeks this summer. You don't even speak French. I'll put it in Italian then. You don't speak Italian. But we are Italian. Last time I checked my passport, Mom, I was American. Vera felt stupid and exposed. She didn't like this aspect of her daughter who had to clarify and literalize so that all the imagination was sucked from an idea. This had been a girl who had colored inside the lines, each color chosen for its realistic depiction. Every dog was colored brown, every frog green. There was never a purple horse. She squeezed more lemon into her tea and caught herself ignoring what Louis was saying, wondering instead if Ernest was a good name for a sheepdog after all. They didn't walk the property until the next morning. Vera hurried to keep up with Louis, who stomped along the ground with confidence, her long legs carrying her further away from Vera with every step. So you'll come up this summer for a vacation? Mom, I work. You can come up on weekends. We live outside Baltimore. That's a trek by car or by plane, especially with the kids. It doesn't help that you live so far away from Dad. Now it's two separate trips. Vera squinted to avoid the glare in an otherwise gray sky. If I had stayed nearby, you'd have always stayed with your father anyway. I love staying in my old room. I love that my kids get to sleep in a basement like it's a sleepover, like when I had sleepovers. I love that it smells just the way it did growing up, Louis said. Like pancakes? Yes, why does the house smell like pancakes? They walked in silence. Vera wanted to understand that pull of nostalgia. But she didn't. She felt as if her own influence, the nostalgia of her, their mother, was being erased. Louise stopped walking and put her fingers to her lips. You can hear the road from here. They stood still and listened. Sure enough, Vera heard the swish of cars along Route 27. She tried to imagine it was an ocean, the whir of a car, actually a wave breaking on the shore. Louis then pointed toward a tree. You have a blind on your land. Look up. I know what a blind is. Vera looked up and noticed what looked like a treehouse. She had never seen a blind. 
It looked unsafe as if it had been haphazardly built by elves in a fork of a tree. Dilapidated and sun-worn, two by fours nailed into the tree as a ladder. She touched a rung, slightly afraid she'd get a splinter. Henry told me they used to hunt bear around here. He told me I should wear an orange vest during hunting season just in case. I guess this is why. Let's go up, Louis said. Vera was disappointed. Louis didn't even ask who Henry was. He could have been her lover. He could have been the reason she moved here. He wasn't. He was going to be her handyman, but she wanted her daughter to ask anyway. Louis was already on the tree, hanging from the little wooden rugs. Come on, Mom. Vera followed, taking care not to scrape her hands on the wood. Inside, there was only a folding chair, metal, and rusted. What a view you have from up here. Oh my God, look at the David. Louis pointed, Vera looked out, and saw the David. I know, it's horrible. It's funny, kind of what you'd see in Staten Island. <laughs> Spring's coming. With all the leaves, you won't see it anymore. That's not going to change things. You've got deer. They eat all the growth they can reach. You'll never have green below his chest. You're always going to see his penis. <laughs> Louis laughed and plopped down on the folding chair. It squeaked with non-use. Vera nodded, although she really didn't see. She didn't think it funny. She hadn't known there was a blind on her land, that someone had sat in this tree, laying in wait to kill a bear. She felt foolish that she lived next door to neighbors with a David whose dick she'd always see. <laughs> had it been a mistake to buy this cabin on five acres? To trust a man she met in town, a person she thought of as the concierge to her new life? She didn't know. Let's go. She looked down and noticed the curly cues of wood she'd peeled off the twigs just the day before. It was the same walk she did every day. She stood below the blind and she had never noticed. The next morning, they sat in the living room under the crossbeams. They laughed, their talk lighter, mostly stories about the grandchildren. Vera made Louie breakfast, a frittata with grilled asparagus and brie. She had no intention of changing her appetites to something more rural, even if she wasn't exactly sure what that was. <laughs> Trudy just asked me for a bra. She's only 10. I think that's when you wanted one. I told her that story about you, Mom, how you put powder puffs in your dress to make your boobs bigger, and how at the party you were dancing and your date pulled you close and poof, a cloud of talcum powder encircled <laughs> you in your date. I never did hear from him. That was such an embarrassing moment. You used to tell me that you had experienced every embarrassing moment so I wouldn't have to, remember? Not really, but she did. When the girls were toddlers, Vera had read all the development books, and while she tried to do all those right things, what she knew she could give them was the benefit of her hindsight. She shared her embarrassing moments, like the talcum powder story, and she shared every mistake, the stove touching story, the staying out past curfew story, the pregnancy scare story. She had shared so many of her bad moments that she feared she hadn't shared any of her successes. She had painted a picture of a woman even she didn't recognize, one who was timid and regretful, a woman she didn't want to be. By late morning, after the dishes were washed and the tea sipped, Vera walked her daughter to the driveway. They stood facing one another. Vera zipped her jacket up to her neck. Even in spring, the days got cold. Louis leaned toward Vera and straightened the hood of her jacket. It looks good on you, Louis said. The jacket? The cabin. Vera wanted to feel pleased that she had gotten her daughter's approval, even if she hadn't gotten the promise of a longer visit. Not an embarrassing moment, I guess. Our visit? Why would you say that? Never mind. She had meant the cabin, 
But Vera realized as soon as she said it that it, she didn't want Louis's answer. She didn't need her practical advice. This cabin was, for better or worse, hers. Louis seemed to accept the answer. She opened the back door and put her overnight bag in the back seat. You could have coffee on the porch. I'm getting a rocking chair for that porch. It's going to be great. Louis was still bent over, her head more in the car than not. I may even learn how to hunt. Louis didn't answer. They kissed each other goodbye and she waved until Louis had driven out of sight. She didn't think Louis had heard her last comment, not that it mattered. Somewhere she had read that humans rarely looked up, that in their busy lives, humans walked with their heads down, their backs curved toward the ground. Fair arched her back and spread out her arms and looked upward toward the sky. Her spine popped and she inhaled. The cold burned her lungs. She could learn to hunt. She was the kind of woman who, who would move to five acres on a whim, who would wear an orange vest during hunting season, who would meet a man in town, rely on his word, and hire him to be her handyman, who would get a dog named Ernest and walk him past the bare trees and past the David. She would not blush. She would live here in this finished cabin, tread the floors, the land, and make it her own. Thank you. Thank you, Alexandra. Amy Longmire is a first-year nonfiction concentration. Her favorite holiday is Christmas because of the old traditions and the new surprises. The best Christmas gift that her family gave, ever gave each other was not gifts, not Christmas gifts, but a summer vacation together. They went to the mountains for a week, just like when they were kids. And you may not know this, but Amy makes really great pancakes. <laughs> Amy Longmire. So, how we doing? Uh, I'm a nonfiction writer, so this is a true story, and uh, it might put me in the witness protection program at some point. <laughs> Hopefully not tonight. Uh, this is called The Acorn Years. Uh, my family is large, loud, and rather unruly. In fact, when introducing our four, uh, the four children to new people for the first time, my parents uh, recite a certain speech. A speech they felt con conveyed all the pertinent information about us as quickly as possible. It went like this. I would like you to meet our eldest daughter, Amy. She's our artist. And this is our other daughter, Kate. She's great, really. And this is our son, Tyler. He's our champ. At this point, the story is getting along. And they haven't begun the actual story yet, and there's still one more child to introduce. They sum up with, and then there's Spencer. <laughs> Spencer turned out to be the funny one. He likes to complain that there are only a handful of blurry Polaroid photos of him as a baby, which looked suspiciously like the red-headed kid who lived next door. <laughs> of course, this is not the truth. Spencer's exaggerating. In my family, that's what we do. My parents made it clear that they'd been raised in homes where children did not have a voice and they vowed to break that cycle with us. All around us, our parents, our friends' parents fought and divorced each other. My own parents fought an altogether different battle, the battle for us to feel heard. Determined to tell a better story with their own lives, my parents sat us down at the dinner table every night and asked us to speak up, and we did. In my family, exaggerating is considered a gift. We overstate things. In fact, my sister and I managed to convince our brothers that she had an 11th toe. 
<laughs> you should know that we never intended any malice by the silly game we're, we're exaggerators, not liars. <laughs> uh, <laughs> in our defense, we're keeping the story interesting. What could be better than the requisite number of toes? An extra toes seemed like a compelling story choice. And somehow we managed to keep this pretense up for more than six years. <laughs> Growing up, if you asked my brothers about Santa Claus, they would tell you that mom and dad hid the presents in the back of the shed. But if you asked them how many toes a person should have, they would giggle. Ten, of course, everyone has ten. And then lean in and whisper, that's my sister Kate, she has eleven, but she's embarrassed about it and won't let us see. <laughs> how many times in your life do you ask to see, uh, count your family member's toes? For Tyler and Spencer, the subject came up quite often, and the scene generally played like this. We're sta standing in the hallway between the boys' bedroom and the girls' bedroom. Curiosity is killing Tyler, who's about seven at this point, and Spencer, who's about five. Please, they beg. Kate, no, she's about 12. And she acts annoyed, but she kind of likes the attention. Uh, let us see it, we won't laugh. Tyler and Spencer act concerned. <laughs> My sister, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, let us see it. Uh, we won't laugh. Tyler and Spencer act concerned, but really, they just want to see what they believe Kate's been hiding from them. Fine, fine. Whatever. But Kate makes a run for our bedroom, and Tyler and Spencer are close on her heels, but she shuts the door and leaves them in the hallway. I'm sitting on the bed, minding my own business. Where did we put that acorn? Kate asks. <laughs> I think it's in the bottom of the jewelry box. Do you need me to get a band-aid? Yeah. So I get up and I find a small band-aid. Can we see it now? The voice bag from the hallway. Just a minute. Kate holds the acorn in place next to her pinky toe. And it never seemed to matter, right foot or left foot? I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I attach the band-aid to the acorn and into her toe. She wiggles her prosthetic toe. Satisfied. Kate puts on a pair of thin socks and takes a few deep breaths. She makes herself ready to face our brothers with her fake toe that they believe with all their hearts is really her 11th toe and a very embarrassing secret she keeps from the rest of the world. So Kate opens the door and the boys attempt to stifle their laughter. This might be the day they finally get to see her shameful secret. Finally. The boys are trying so hard to contain themselves and Kate backpedals, I don't know. It's really embarrassing. <laughs> you promised. Okay, but I don't want to take my socks off. Why not? It's ugly. But can we touch it? You know, Kay looks to me for reassurance. This is my cue as the older sister. I roll my eyes. Come on, guys. What's the big deal? So she has an extra toe. So what? The big deal is she has 11 toes. It's weird. Hey. Kate says, don't make fun of me. Now, Kate can cry on cue, real tears. And at six feet tall, she's someone we all look up to. <laughs> she almost had me convinced, and I was the one who attached the acorn in the first place. <laughs> Tyler and Spencer count her toes solemnly. Eight, nine, ten, eleven. They recoil in disgust. Gross. It's darker and harder than normal toes. <laughs> This is Kate's favorite line. The doctors say it's dying and it's just going to fall off. <laughs> <laughs> She's soft. And this is the part where mom always steps in. Boys, 
Are you teasing your sister? You're embarrassing her. The boy straightened up. The <laughs> mom continues. I mean, how would you feel if you were the one with 11 toes? <laughs> we're sorry. The boys are quick to offer sympathy. That's better. Let's leave her alone. This is really hard for her. <laughs> Ushers the boys out of the bedroom. I close the door, careful not to let them hear us laughing as Kate peels off her socks and the band-aid. We cash the acorn back in the jewelry box for safekeeping. This exact performance happened several times a year for six years. <laughs> it began before the boys could really count, which was so much easier, believe me, and they were well into junior high before they figured out the truth. Kate has ten toes, just like pretty much every other human on the planet. But after six years of Oscar-worthy performances, Kate gave up the game one evening as the boys threatened to royally embarrass her in front of her high school boyfriend, Dave. At 16, Dave was tall and skinny and pale and kind of quiet compared to our family. It's really, uh, really nice of you to date our sister, even though she has, you know. <laughs> the boys mentioned this to Dave as he picks up Kate for a date. No, uh, I don't know. Dave is confused. Spencer only adds to the confusion, she didn't tell you? <laughs> tell me, tell me what? Dave's confusion is rapidly turning to concern. Tell him what, Kate intervenes. About your 11 toes. <laughs> what? Dave's concern is rapidly turning to fear. Kate has 11 toes, Spencer blurts up. And I can't believe she hasn't told you. I thought you guys were close. <laughs> I do not, Kate shoots back. Uh, yes, you do. Tyler is certain. Dave is done. We all are. Kate doesn't miss a beat. She slips off her shoes and socks, revealing her bare feet and ten normal toes. The truth set her free. <laughs> what do you mean you have ten toes? <laughs> in disbelief and horror, the answer, devastatingly simple, pretty much everyone has ten toes. This was, this was a day for the history books. The earth continued to spin on its axis. The ground did not open up and swallow anyone whole. And time did not stand still that this was the one time in history that my brothers were rendered speechless. And this would never happen again. As Kate left with her date, I couldn't think of anything comforting or helpful to say in that moment. So I went with, I'm just shocked you actually bought that story for as long as you did. <laughs> it was an acorn. They're all over the backyard. I've never been known for my bedside manner. And I think I better stick to storytelling. So recently, I emailed my siblings asking them to tell me what they remembered of the years of Kate's alleged 11 toes, the acorn years. I wanted to make sure I got the story straight. Tyler responded with, I'll just quote his email. It says, all I can remember is getting to that 11th toe and being seriously freaked out. <laughs> Way too hard to be a toe. And, but how am I supposed to know what this deformity should feel like? <laughs> Besides, my sister wouldn't lie to me, especially a sister in tears, and the whole family going along with it. <laughs> Come to think of it, you should all be ashamed of yourselves. <laughs> he closed his email with a smiley face emoticon and a love ya, tie. It's safe to say he's over it. And this was Kate's response. Again, I'm quoting her email. <laughs> I'm not sure how it started. I think we were watching TV and the boys were making fun of someone's feet and I said it wasn't nice. 
I, being a noble big sister, said that everyone is different and deserves respect, no matter what. They weren't convinced. So I said that I was different too. Thankfully, I was wearing socks. I told them I had 11 toes, and they didn't believe me. I pretended to cry and left the room. Meanwhile, Mom was listening in. She came up with a plan, wacky, but I got my point across. So basically, Kate put on this show for six years to make the world a better place. <laughs> I think it's important to note that Kate is now molding the minds of America's youth as a third grade teacher. Her work continues. Spencer never actually answered this particular email. He's too busy at school and he normally only answers my text messages. He's studying philosophy, ethics, morality, nature, reality, and <laughs> state. I like to think it has something to do with an acorn and real tears. There really wasn't much actual drama in our family, and despite the acorn years, we're a quite functional family. Not normal, but functional. We were raised in an old house at the top of a steep hill under an ancient oak tree in suburban San Diego. We were raised in the midst of a rebellion, not of political parties or religious crusades, but a battle my parents fought in response to the old edict that children should be seen and never heard. As a result of their efforts, we are textbook exaggerators. This is our gift to the world. This is <laughs> I, I tend to start my stories with, true story, I'm not exaggerating. I probably am, but I cannot help myself. It's from these people, the great one, the champ, and the funny one, that I have learned the value and purpose of dreaming, the definition of a great story, and the understanding that maybe our main job as members of the human race is to tell the story of our lives, holding fast our confessions in a way that says, this is who I was, and look who I'm becoming. And I wonder if my parents ever regret winning this particular battle. I hope not. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. And again, thank you to all of our student readers tonight. Haley, Allison, CJ, Alexandra, and Amy. Thank you, all of you. Before our faculty reader starts, there are some seats up front for some of you who've been standing. If you would like to sit down, you're welcome. Gina Bina High is a best-selling author and a professor, professor of writing at USC. Her novels have been translated into 18 languages and have been selected as one of the best books of the year by both the Los Angeles Times and the Chicago Tribune. Her writings have appeared in the Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Tribune, the San Francisco Chronicle, Los Angeles Magazine, Huffington Post, TruthDig.com, and in numerous other journals. She writes a monthly column for the Jewish Journal of Greater Los Angeles, for which she has twice been a finalist for an LA Press Club Award. Her favorite holiday is none. They depress her. And if you want to know why, read her novel, Caspian Rain, on sale at the front. <laughs> and something you may not know about Gina is that she prefers the saying, if you like a writer, don't meet her. And what you don't know about her is probably left unknown. So ladies and gentlemen, Gina B. Nahai. Thank you guys for coming. I have to say, first of all, Tom, you do an amazing job. You really do. Isn't he a great host? I think that's really wonderful. 
and also I have to tell you guys, I am just so proud to see what fabulous writers you are. I mean, whether I've been your teacher or not, I mean, the quality here is so wonderful, and I hope that, I know that there'll be many prize winners and uh, published authors and uh, etc. among all of you. So congratulations, you really, really are very, very good. Okay, so here's, um, you know, I, Tom said holiday and all that, and I, oh wait, 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 wait. Before I get there, let me say one thing. Uh, November 30th, Tuesday afternoon at six o'clock, an MPW alum, somebody that went to school when I was uh, a student at MPW, is coming to speak. She's just got a book, her third book, just out by Farrar Strauss. It's called The True Memoirs of Little K. And she's gonna come and talk about how she researched the novel and the great big historical novel about the last czar of Russia and his mistress, who was a ballerina, and Adrian herself was actually a, a dancer up until college years or something. Anyway, so come to that, please. And if you can't come to that, since you need to support Skylight Books tonight, I'm sure they have her books on sale, because Skylight's going to be selling books at the event. So 6 o'clock at the Levy Library. Please come, and um, you'll, you'll like it, and you'll learn something. OK. so. <coughs> Tom said holiday, and I, I apologize for being a killjoy. <laughs> the truth is, I'm Iranian, I'm Jewish, I had a Catholic grandmother who was very, very Catholic. I, I mean, the Jews are very Jewish. Uh, I lived in Iran, they're all Shiite Muslims, and okay, so we have all those holidays, you have no idea how many. And then I come here, and you guys have Thanksgiving, the 4th of July, it kills me. Every five minutes there's another holiday. It is so exhausting, I swear to God, I can't even tell you. So, I really wanted to read something fun and upbeat and, you know, kind of holiday But uh, I looked through my stuff, and there's nothing fun and upbeat about any holiday that I knew of. And so, I'm going to read this thing about, it. it's, a, it's a Muslim holiday, but it's like the biggest sort of, Muslim holiday in, in the country. So I'll read that, and um, it's from Caspian Ray. The, the book is a story about an Iranian girl in, in Iran right before the revolution who's losing her hearing, and in the ways in which she and her family deal with that loss. And really, it's a, it's a, it's a study of the way Westerners, especially Americans, deal with loss, and the way people from more traditional societies deal with that. I, uh, you know, the, the first thing that, uh, one of the first things that I learned when I came to this country um, was that, uh, you know, this whole concept of uh, uh, making lemonade out of lemons is a very, very, very American idea. Uh, and it's only possible in this country. Other places, your past follows you, your history follows you, and uh, in, in many societies, such as Iran, you carry your grief and your losses. <laughs> One American, the writer for The Simpsons, had studied the new one, and he told me, you know, it's a way of life for, for, for Middle Easterners. Loss is a way of life. Whereas in this country, you know, any anything you fail at, it's okay. You'll do better next time. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I mean, you know, it's stuff. Uh, anyway, it's all good. It's all good if you were born and raised here and, and, and you bought into that. But otherwise, it's very difficult for somebody like me to, um, to adapt to this new way of thinking. So the, the book is a study of that, how Americans deal with loss and how 
people from traditional societies deal with loss. I'm going to read a couple of pages first about the characters that appear in the piece about the holiday, just so you know, because there's, there's a lot of names and stuff. And uh, So the first uh, two and a half pages are from the earlier part of the book. <coughs> the, the story is narrated, for, uh, narrated for, by the little girl, the, the, the deaf girl. And she's talking about her mother and her mother's family. The girl on the street, her name is Bahar, would not stand out in any crowd. She's not particularly beautiful or smart or endowed with exceptional wit, but she has a zest for life, a wild and irrational optimism that is alarming because it is so out of sync with the reality that surrounds her. Her father, my grandfather, is a former cantor's apprentice who has not managed to rise to the ranks to which he had aspired and who now sings at weddings and funerals instead. Her mother works in the house as a seamstress. There's a son who has never worked a day in his life, who goes around in a second-hand suit and a borrowed tie. He pretends to be rich when everyone knows he wants for his next meal, lives off his parents instead of helping support the family. His one asset in the world is a deep baritone voice, and this alone has got him convinced that he should be an opera singer. He has never seen a real opera, and he wouldn't know where to go, one to see, where to, go to see one. But he does love the idea of being allowed on stage so he can showcase his talents, earn the adoration of fans, become famous. As it is, he doesn't sing anywhere but at the homes of friends and relatives. And he only knows the lines to one song, a little known and quite possibly mangled number he calls Granada, which he sings in his sixth grade English as a second language accent. The rest of the time, he sits on the roof of the Sorrento Cafe on top of Pahlavi Avenue, sipping iced coffee that he gets for free from the waiters who humor him in the slower hours, reading government propaganda in yesterday's paper, and bragging to the handful of other patrons about a life they all know he does not lead, and a future they know he will not reach. But what's the difference, really? It's all illusion if you think about it. And who's to say what is likely or not? Wasn't Reza Shah an illiterate soldier one night and king of the country next? Real life, the opera singer likes to say, does not always rise to the occasion. There's another son who died when he was only 10 years old, but who keeps coming back, dropping in on the family without any warning or invitation and staying for as long as he wants before he takes off and breaks his mother's heart as if for the first time. And a third one still, the youngest of the three boys and probably the smartest too. He realized early in life that there's no great advantage to being either poor or Jewish. And so he converted to Islam and married the daughter of a rich mullah who had promised him a great deal of money in this world and 72 virgins in the next. He's changed his name from Moshe to Muhammad printed his picture in every newspaper in the city under the heading Jalil al-Islam, New Muslim, and is doing a fine job of convincing everyone he's worthy of his new station and his newly acquired wealth. These are all my relatives, by the way. Jalil al-Islam's parents don't dislike him for converting as much as feel contempt for him. He couldn't tough it out as a Jew, they say. He chose the easy way out. Still, he can't shake the embarrassment his conversion has caused the family 
And so they go around pretending he's still a Jew, invite him to funerals but not weddings, ask if he could please leave the wife at home when he shows up on Cyrus Street where they live, if he could take off the Muslim above when he comes around, think about his unmarried sisters whose chances at a good union have forever been spoiled by his selfishness. The sisters' chances, in truth, had been less than stellar even before Jalid al-Islam's conversion. The oldest one has already passed the age at which young girls become old maids. She stays at home plucking chickens and washing rice, waiting for the suitors who didn't call when she was 15 and 18, and who certainly won't call now that she's nearing 30. The second sister, thank heavens, is married and has two kids, and she'd be just fine, really. She could have herself a good old time if she didn't raise her husband's ire so often. The husband is a doctor who barely made it into medical school. Everyone knows this because the results of the college entrance exams are printed every year in the daily newspaper for the world to see. And who may or may not be a real doctor at all. He may be a hack, really, though he claims he's a psychiatrist, treats crazy people as if a person's brain is like a bone you can rest, a reset or an appendix you can remove. Since when does the soul get cured by a couple of pills? Who died and put him in charge of saving the lost anyway? Still, it's nice to have a son-in-law you can call doctor, even if he does lose his temper once in a while, beat his wife nearly unconscious right before the eyes of their children. After every beating, he takes her onto the roof of their house and locks her up in a room with a broken window through which a hundred pigeons fly in a nest. It's a drafty, frightening place, too cold in winter and dangerously hot, hot in summer. The psychiatrist keeps his wife tied to a pole, has a padlock on the door and the key in his pocket. Twice a day, he sends the children, a son and a daughter, to bring food to their mother. But he refuses to allow the neighbors or her family members to visit her while she's in confinement, leaves her or for several days until the house is overrun by dirt or he gets tired of the meals his nine-year-old daughter has to make for him in her mother's absence. Then he sends for his wife's parents to come to the house, gives them the key to the pigeon room so they can free their daughter. She emerges with her hair matted from dust and pigeon droppings and her face and hands scratched from too many pigeons landing on her. She stands before him terrified and trembling, her eyes sewn to the ground because she can't stand to see her children looking at her in that state. And after a long apology to, his, to this healer of the human mind, sets about cleaning the house and cooking a meal before she's even allowed to take a bath. Some families I have learned are stranger than others. So, truth is I knew all these people. Uh, honest to God, and it's all true. But now for the for the upbeat portion of the reading. <clears throat> On assassination days, this is the holiday, it's called assassination day. The entire country shuts down. We stay at home with the doors locked and listen to the sound of processions going past our house. Men of all ages, dressed in funeral clothes, march in groups and wave black mourning flags. In Farsi and Arabic, they chant prayers for their dead prophet and for his martyred disciples. To prove their grief and devotion, they beat themselves and their young boys with heavy metal chains, 
with machete-like blades. Their closed hair and their faces and bodies get drenched in blood and still they march, striking the metal against their forehead until they crack their skull and fall unconscious to the ground. After dark, the procession's over, the city slips into a silence ripe with danger, raw nerves and pulsating anger, and millions of young men ready to die for a cause, any cause, just name it and we'll be there, it's our duty, the least we can do in the service of the holy imams who gave their lives for us. Anyone with a self sense of self-preservation knows to stay off the streets and out of the way of those men. But self-preservation does not sit well with Ruby because she's a Kurd. They're brave and adventurous. They raise their daughters like boys, let them go to school and teach them to ride and shoot guns and even go around without covering their hair and faces. As soon as the last procession has turned the corner away from June Street, she wraps her chador around her waist and goes outside to wash the blood off the sidewalk. This blood makes me sick, she claims, though my mother suspects that she's outside hoping to see Artemis. I feel like fainting every time I set eyes on it. By morning, it'll smell like a rotting carcass. I wish those men would kill themselves once and for all and spare me from doing this again next year. She's washing the blood one night when a taxi pulls up and deposits the opera singer outside our house. He's unshaven and disheveled, and he looks disoriented. He stands before Ruby without saying anything. He clears his throat and strains for words, starts and stops, then starts again. The pigeon sister has hung herself. She went up to the roof with a piece of rope. She tied one end to the railing, the other end around her neck, and stepped off the ledge. People saw her from a hundred meters away, dangling like a straw figure, her legs loose and shaking like those of a marionette, the hem of her dress puffing up in the wind like a balloon, but no one thought she was a real person. It must be a joke or a scarecrow, something to frighten the birds away. It wasn't until her children were walking home after school, when they saw the body and recognized their mother's dress, that anyone realized what she had done. The suicide offends a psychiatrist's husband to such an extent. He refused to pay for the burial or to sit Shiva in his house. He tells his son and daughter they may attend the funeral in the week of mourning at the grandparents' house, but that afterward they are not to see their mother's relatives again. But he knows this will, because he knows this will embarrass the in-laws, he sends the children to Cyrus Street in the care of Jadid al-Islam and his daughter of a mullah wife. They arrive early one morning in the white Mercedes Jadid al-Islam has bought with money he recently inherited from a dead cousin. He knows he's despised by the cousin's wife and children for taking what would otherwise be theirs, but he feels justified because he's only obeying the law that rewards converts to Islam with all of their relatives' inheritance. He's adamant that his conversion had nothing to do with this law or the prospect of earning easy money. He says he became Muslim because he was visited by an angel who told him that only those who loved the Prophet Muhammad and revered his son-in-law, Imam Ali, would be spared the fires of hell. He says the angel had brought blonde hair and pale skin, like Doris Day, he says, only without the ball. She appeared one day as he was walking around the Mamzade Saleh in Tajish, north of Tehran. 
There's a thousand-year-old maple tree there with a trunk so large someone has built a whole store, the normal size and proportions inside it. Such an unusual sight that people travel to Imam Zadeh Saleh just to see it, which is what Jadid al-Islam was doing when he saw the angel. He says she followed him out of the hollow tree trunk and back to Tehran, visited him once or twice in his sleep, and she was beautiful and convincing enough that he went and gave up his infidel status once and for all. Is it his fault, really, that along with the invitation to paradise, gets to collect his relatives' inheritance here on earth. I have seen the pigeon children before, the pigeon sisters' children before, on the rare occasions when their father allowed them to visit our grandparents' house for Shabbat. On the morning of the burial, the boy who's younger comes into the courtyard first, he's short and pudgy, his cheeks flushed amber. He digs his hand into his pocket and mumbles to himself without looking at anyone in particular just leans against the yard wall, kicking at gravel and looking as if he's doing his best not to cry. His sister is wearing a black dress that must have belonged to her mother because it's clearly too big and she has a black scarf draped over her head and hiding her face almost entirely. A shrunken shadow in a pair of patent leather shoes so new they still squeak when she walks. It's strange how a person carries around the shadow of those that matter most to her. You can always see it, that presence, or its absence, in the eyes, in the movements of the hands, in a person's laugh. You can see it if an old woman had a father who loved her when she was a child, if a middle-aged man lost his first love, if a teenage girl has a best friend she knows she can run to. You see it in the way people move and speak, in the subjects they choose and the things they avoid, in the way they appear solid or hollow, certain or plagued with doubt. When she was alive, the Pigeon Sisters' children clung to her, one on either side holding her hand, and she between them with her limp body and transparent eyes, like a blonde woman, blind woman being led to safety by a pair of midgets. As troubled and insipid as she was, she had managed to provide safe harbor to her children. They sat with her, eyes downcast at the Seder table, fell asleep with their head on her lap at dinner. They whispered in her ear the things they were too embarrassed to say out loud, that they were hungry or cold, or too shy to accept an offer of tea, even though they had wanted one. The day they come to bury her, the Pigeon Sisters' children still carry her shadow, is still protecting them, that visceral knowledge, however false now, that they can run to her when all this is over, bury their faces in her chest and cry and tell her how terrible it was to see her dangling from the rope, taken down and hauled away like some beast, wrapped in a cheap shroud and thrown into the earth, in that cemetery where the Jews have buried their dead for hundreds of years, stacking corpses on top of each other because the land is so small and the mullahs won't allow the cemetery to expand and where some of the headstones are so old, they disintegrate at the touch. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. 
Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.